This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, our gospel reading for today is among the most well-known stories in the entire Bible. It is a trope that has so thoroughly and completely saturated Western culture that people who have never read a sentence of Scripture nonetheless know the broad outlines of the story. As a person in an emergency situation, and of course, the clergy pass right by on their way to do important religious stuff, careful first to cross the road so as to alleviate any possible tension or pang of conscience that they might experience. Then the stranger comes by and offers aid in a critical emergency situation. And this story serves in the popular secular imagination, both as a condemnation of hypocritical, self-serving religious leadership and as a positive image that supports altruistic behavior. Any passerby that offers aid in an emergency situation is therefore called a Good Samaritan. And many states even have so-called Good Samaritan laws that protect would-be do-gooders from legal suits by folks who do not appreciate being rescued. But the trope of the Good Samaritan, shorn from its literary context in the Gospel of Luke and made into a generic and bland and blasé call to help people in need, in almost every way fails to grasp the significance of this story. There is a specific reason why Luke retells this parable by Jesus, and there is a specific reason why it appears where it does in Luke's Gospel. Every day that goes by, I am increasingly convinced that there is a devastating but invisible famine happening in America. We don't see this famine because we are immersed in an endless sea of cheap consumer goods and craft beer and farm-to-table restaurants and noise and entertainment. We have a surfeit of Netflix and Amazon original programming, but meanwhile, our hearts are starving for the Word of God. We do not read it, and when we read it, we do not understand it, and so therefore we do not profit from it. We are awash as well in a sea of false teachers on the internet who cast doubt upon the reliability of the scriptures or who encourage us to read them superficially and without any real discernment. And we are awash, moreover, in pundits and activists who encourage us to live our truth and miss the one thing necessary. But the church in all ages has known with certainty a central truth that we modern Christians have forgotten. And that is this. The scriptures are sacramental. They are God's instrument which he uses to feed our souls. When we study them and we meditate upon them, the Holy Spirit nourishes us with the spiritual food of Christ, who was everywhere in this text. St. Augustine once said to his people in a sermon, I nourish you with what I myself am nourished on, namely the Holy Scriptures. And unless we too are nourished by study of and meditation upon these scriptures, we cannot know who we are or what we are for, and we will live emaciated and shriveled lives. There is no poverty and no hunger greater than not knowing our story. And so we need to know what Luke is trying to tell us when he repeats this story about Jesus. We need to know why he put it where he put it. We need to read it, as I've said before, and I will say again, intensively, paying attention to the details that Luke includes, and extensively paying attention to where the story falls in the narrative. Hey, that's just how you read the Bible. 
So first, let's look at the text intensively. The framing of this story is utterly critical and indispensable to our understanding of it. The one who questions Jesus is a teacher of the law, one of the Pharisees, a shepherd of Israel. And he asks Jesus a question, the answer to which he already knows. He's trying to trap Jesus. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, being Jesus, knows that he knows the answer. And so he makes him answer his own question. Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answers, well, a perfect catechetical summation of the law. A quotation from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And the second quotation from Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. That summarizes the whole law. And Jesus says, that's right, you've got it. Now go do that. But then the man, Luke stresses, does not like this answer because it condemns him because he hasn't done it. Of course he hasn't done it. That's where we all live. I think in fairness, every one of us in this room ought to see ourselves as this expert in the law. This poor guy, he's a master in virtue signaling. And if he lived today, we would be blinded by the purity and the earnestness of his hashtagging. But y'all, he's talking to Jesus. And Jesus loves him enough to see right through him and call his bluff. Sure, that's great, man. You are absolutely punctilious, sir, in all of your opinions. Now let's see you get some skin in the game. So the teacher of the law asked a clarifying question in order to justify himself. And who is my neighbor? To reply to this, Jesus tells a story in which the men who are in the teacher of the law's social caste feature prominently, but not at all flatteringly. They are not the heroes of this story, but rather they are this story's negative foils. The priest and the Levite, who are in essence Israel's collective conscience, abandon this neighbor. Rather than help this man, they pass by on the other side of the road. And the distance with which they pass by this man reinforces the distance of their hearts from the spirit of the law, what the law actually requires of them. They have all the right opinions, but their hearts are far from the opinions which they profess. They are giving this man a wide berth so that they do not have to feel the burning and the stinging of their consciences as they neglect the weightier matters of the law, as Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, in order to attend to the lesser points. This is, in the calculus that this parable sets up, a spiritual and moral disaster. The shepherds of Israel are abandoning a lost and ruined sheep of Israel. But who does care for the neighbor? It's the Samaritan. And of course, the Samaritans were those who worshipped on Mount Gerizim rather than at the temple in Jerusalem. And they are regarded by the Jews as the people of the land, as the Old Testament describes them. These are the folks who were left when the Assyrians and the Babylonians took the best and the brightest away from Israel into exile. And when Ezra and Nehemiah returned to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem and the temple and to restore temple worship, these are the folks who are rejected. As the Jews see it, they have intermarried with the nations around them. They have taken on the practices of the nations, and therefore they have lost the thread of their story. And so faithful Jews avoided Samaritans, regarding them just like Gentile sinners. And the Samaritans returned the favor. So there is a fully intended shock value in the way that Jesus is telling the story. He means for the punchline to be completely unexpected. Faithful Jews abandon their own, but the outsider, the Samaritan, rescues the man and lavishes his own resources upon his recuperation. And when he finishes the parable, 
Jesus says to the man, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The teacher of the law can't even get the word out. He says, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even get the word out because of its distastefulness to him. So it must have been even more grievous for him for Jesus to say, go and do likewise. That is, be like the one you hate and want nothing to do with. And the framing of this story with a teacher of the law challenging Jesus and Jesus responding by deprecating the leadership of Israel and highlighting the nobility of the outsider's actions have led the church in all ages reflecting on this story to see in the Samaritan not a disciple of Jesus, but Jesus himself. Now, I want to make it clear that we can in no way detach the disciple of Jesus from Jesus, as if Jesus is called to a sacrificial outpouring of his life, but we are not. The prosperity gospel is a uniquely American perversion of the gospel in which Christ suffers so we don't have to. But alas, St. Paul says we are co-heirs with Christ if indeed we also have suffered with him. The disciple is not above the master so that whatever the master does, the disciple will also do. But the ordering of these things is utterly critical. We will not understand the gospel at all if we do not understand the proper ordering of these things. We get to be participants in the work of redemption that Christ is doing, but we are not ourselves the saviors. Only Jesus is mighty to save. If we want to understand the drama of redemption, we have to know the part we are meant to play in the drama. The early church grasped this point extremely well, and it impacted the way that they interpreted the story. The early church understood that the Christian has a role in the story of redemption, but it is not the role of the Samaritan. The Christian is not the protagonist of this story. Jesus is the Samaritan. The fathers of the church all claim that Samaritans were not just a people group among the Israelites, but that Samaritan was also a word which meant guardian. And so they applied this title directly to Jesus. Jesus is the Samaritan, the guardian. We are the man left for dead on the side of the road, our lost, our broken, our savaged humanity. That's the man on the side of the road. St. Augustine put it this way. Robbers, that is, the world, the flesh, and the devil, left you half dead on the road, but you have been found lying there by the passing and kindly Samaritan. Amen. This Samaritan, this Jesus, has poured wine and oil on us. This Samaritan has lifted us onto his mule and has carried us to the inn. But St. Augustine goes on to say that as we, are he- as we are healed, as we are brought into the inn, we are also transformed into innkeepers. We participate in the healing that Christ is bringing to a broken world. The church for Augustine is the inn where the man has been brought. Here's what he says. You have believed that Christ became flesh and healed us in his incarnation. You have been brought to the inn and you are being cured in the church And then critically, Augustine adds, the church is where I am speaking and why I am speaking. Augustine is not the Samaritan. He is the innkeeper. And not just Augustine, but the whole congregation to whom he is preaching. This is what he says. This is what I too, what all of us are doing. We are performing the duties of the innkeeper. And the innkeeper is told by the Samaritan, if you spend any more, I will pay you when I return. 
It is not our resources we are spending when we care for people, when we care for the desolate, the lost, the broken, the hungry, the poor. It is the Lord's resources. However much we spend, brothers and sisters, Augustine says, it is the Lord's money. We can't save the world with our own resources. Only Christ owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he promises to supply our every need as we join with him in this great work of redemption. That's good news. That's gospel. We have this native tendency as modern people to see ourselves as the protagonist in every story. And I just want to tell you that that is because we are narcissists. When we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, we imagine ourselves as the Samaritans, rescuing those who have been harmed by the world and restoring them to wholeness. And it is part of the hubris and the idolatry of the modern age that we imagine that we are capable of this kind of salvation. We flatter ourselves. We think too highly of ourselves. But the historic church, which received and was shaped by this parable in its humility, both about itself and about what it was capable of, thought otherwise. No, we are not the Samaritans. We are innkeepers in the inn of the church, participating with Christ, not in our own resources, but with his. This is a critical point for us to grasp, because if we're going to participate in the drama of the redemption of the world, then paradoxically we must give up our pretension that we are the saviors of the world. And therefore we must also slow down sufficiently in order to be transformed who is, by, by the one who is the salvation of the world. So about 40 years ago, there were two Princeton sociologists named John Darley and Daniel Batson who created a study to test the parable of the Good Samaritan, see whether it was actually true or not. In this study, the pool was Princeton seminary students. And the study sought to test two things. First, they wanted to see whether thinking religious thoughts had any effect upon the likelihood that a theological student would help a stranger on the street who was in peril. And secondly, they wanted to test the effects of time pressure upon the likelihood of a student helping a stranger on the street. So Darley and Batson wrote, One can imagine the priest and Levite, prominent public figures, hurrying along with little black books full of meetings and appointments, glancing furtively at their sundials. I must admit, I am skewered by this point. So as they crafted their study, they had some of their subjects rush and others take their time. And the participants, which I've already mentioned, were all Princeton Theological Seminary students, were all told that they have three to five minutes to give a talk about being a minister of the gospel. For half the students, they were, they were to ask to talk in general about what it means to be a minister and what kind of jobs involve ministry to some degree. But the other half were given the story of the Good Samaritan and told to incorporate it somehow into their talk. And then some students were told to head over in a leisurely way, and others were told, oh, you're late. They were expecting you a few minutes ago. We better get moving. And along the way, of course, they had staged a faux emergency, which the paper refers to as the incident. An actor is sitting slumped in a doorway, head down, eyes closed, not moving. And as the student passes by, they cough as though to signal that there is actually some distress happening here. What they found was really interesting. The content of the talk the students gave made absolutely no difference as to whether or not they stopped to give aid. This is like terrible phrase that, a sentence that appears in the actual report. Darley and Batson say, that on several occasions, a seminary student going to give his talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim as he hurried on his way. Ouch. But, get this, the student's perception of how much time he or she had did make a huge difference. Students who were hurried were much less likely to be helpful toward the man in need. 
So the paper makes this critical point, which all of us in this room right now need to internalize, like from now, like in perpetuity. If we're going to participate in the healing of the world by the Samaritan, the guardian, Jesus, the most important thing that we can do is to slow down. Modern life is characterized by frenzy and distraction, and therefore there is no more urgent task for we who desire to be innkeepers, as Dallas Willard once put it, than to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. Okay, repeat after me. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry. So on this point, the necessity of slowing down and attending to Jesus, who is the Samaritan, we need to actually attend to where Luke places this story. Because where he places it in his gospel is all important to our interpretation of it. This story is a bracing call to the life of discipleship. But it is placed in the middle of three stories about the life of discipleship. Earlier in this chapter, Luke tells us about the sending of the 72 disciples, two by two. And then he tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan, helping us to see what Christ is doing to rescue humanity from its its robbers, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and how we are to be involved in the redemption of the world as innkeepers, using his resources rather than our own. And then, amazingly, Luke turns to the story of Mary and Martha. And in this story, Martha is described as busy and distracted with the arduous work of ministry. She's preparing to receive the Lord into her home. And of course, this is not wrong. Martha is actually doing what Jesus counsels. He's being the work of the innkeeper. She is busy offering hospitality to Christ. She is busy receiving Christ into her home. And Mary is not helping Martha. Instead, she is sitting at the feet of Christ, hanging on his every word. She has taken him seriously. She sees that Christ is the word of God, and therefore that every word that comes from his mouth is nourishment for her soul. And Jesus rebukes Martha, but praises Mary. Mary is the one who embodies the posture of the disciple. Martha interprets Mary's rapt attention to Jesus in the same way that we would interpret it, as a kind of inaction in the face of the world's needs. But Jesus is saying that Martha, and we by extension, fail to see that listening to Jesus is precisely the most important work of the kingdom that we must do if we are to play the part we are meant to play in the healing of the world. The early church understood in a way that we do not that prayer and meditation upon the scriptures are not inaction, but the most important form of action, the most important form of our participation in Christ's action in a world of great need. So at Provincial Assembly just a few weeks ago, one of the speakers was a man named James Brian Smith. And Smith said this in his talk. He said that as we get busier, there are three things that we inevitably begin to cut out of our schedules. First is prayer. Second is self-care. And third are the important relationships in our life. Now, I don't know about you, but this hit just a little bit too close to home. As I was praying to get ready for this sermon, this is what landed with me. I cannot be the innkeeper participating in the mercy of Jesus extended to a broken world if I am not intentionally receiving from him resources to do this work. And so my study, my meditation, my prayer are indeed my most important work if I want to be a disciple who participates in his healing work in the world. And so that's where I want to leave us this morning. We are not the Samaritans. We are the innkeepers. 
And we may only participate in this work of the healing of the world if the resources with which we heal are not our own, but those that we receive from the true Samaritan, who is Christ. That is what Luke wants us to see this morning. So let us be about this critical, central, important work, ruthlessly eliminating hurry from our lives. Not so we can indulge ourselves, but so that we may actually be formed into innkeepers, cooperating with Christ in the coming of his kingdom in this broken world. Amen.